The Guardian. The latest WikiLeaks cables depict Russia as a mafia state. Finally, it is for the world to see. WikiLeaks has put out 220 confidential documents of the US. Hallo und herzlich willkommen. Hier sind die N24 Nachrichten. WikiLeaks zeigt, dass man kaum noch Gespräche führen. Simon, alors cette semaine, on a beaucoup parlé des révélations de WikiLeaks, ces révélations. There has been no official response from the Chinese government on the WikiLeaks release of hundreds of thousands of sensitive US diplomatic cables. As the United States government condemns the biggest leak of secret documents in its history, we're going to be reflecting on a week of international news stories that will shape the future of American diplomacy. I'm Ian Black, The Guardian's Middle East editor. In this week's Focus podcast, we'll discuss what's changed following the release of these papers, what it means for those who are implicated, and whether it was right to make the secret cables public. The Guardian's editor, who's overseen the publication this week, is Alan Rusbridger. The Arab uh, states' cables that we, we published on, on day one were fairly extraordinary, not, not because uh, it would have come as any great surprise to President Ahmadinejad, but just uh, seeing the names of, of kings and prime ministers uh, attached to these remarks was very stark. Uh, I think the North Korea cables, the, hearing the Chinese speak very frankly, uh, I think the extent of the detail in the in the Russian cables is pretty uh, stark too. Um, so I think where, wherever you look, there are things that either we suspected to be the position but have never seen quite so frankly expressed before, or where we have really learned new things. I'm joined in the studio by David Lee, The Guardian's investigations editor. He's been combing through these files for months. Alongside him, we have Sherard Cooper-Coles, Britain's former special envoy to Afghanistan and Pakistan. He's also served as a diplomat in the United States, Israel and Saudi Arabia. And completing the panel, The Guardian's diplomatic editor and former Washington bureau chief, Julian Borger. Welcome to you all. David Lee, you heard Alan Rusbridge there listing some of the extraordinary stories we've published this week. But what do we know now that was not public knowledge a week ago? Well, I for one certainly didn't know that the Chinese were willing to see a reunification of Korea. I was quite startled at that discovery. And as I read the papers uh, saying that uh, belligerence was ramping up between North and South Korea, that altered my perception of events a lot. Sherrod Cooper-Coles, do you believe that the documents that we've seen come out this week, do they have the capacity to change the behaviour of uh, regimes, difficult places, Iran, North Korea and Russia? Yes, I mean, in, in a sense, uh, everything has changed and nothing has changed. I mean, I think uh, once these had been put into the public domain, it was the right thing to do to publish them. And I applaud what The Guardian's been doing. It's uh, a remarkable uh, journalistic achievement. Um, it hasn't uh, changed um, a great deal of substance apart from uh, some of the revelations on North Korea. But it has shown the United States uh, struggling to get its way in the world. It's shown a superpower beginning, I think, uh, what is going to be a long period of relative decline. And uh, you see an American diplomatic machine uh, thrashing around, uh, really um, struggling in different parts of the world to uh, impose its uh, will. Uh, You see 
American diplomats being remarkably courageous in speaking truth to power. I do applaud that. It's not always the case that diplomats are prepared to tell their capitals things they don't want to hear. And Julian Borger, what what's your feeling about what this collection of documents tells us about the the place of the United States in, in the world today? Um, I think that it shows us that, that it's all pervasive. I mean, these documents cover the whole of international politics, international diplomacy. And in, a, in every case, the uh, US diplomats are, are involved. They play a leading role. They uh, play a position of uh, influence. And it shows, in a way, you know, international power at, it, at its height. Uh, with sort of uh, fingers in every in every part. David Lee, do you think it could be argued that these revelations have actually helped the United States in any way, or is the balance completely negative? Well, I was fascinated to hear Sherrod say that he thinks that this is the start of a long decline, it, because when you look through these cables, the impression you get is not that of evil Uncle Sam uh, plotting and planning and getting his way uh, across the world. It's rather the opposite. It's of Uncle Sam flailing around, doing his best to make a recalcitrant world do what he says. Uh, and it's, it, it is a picture that's consistent with a, a decline in the future. Yes, it's relative decline, though, David, and uh, it's only part of the American machine. I mean, one of the things that's worried me and worried many American diplomats is the militarization of American diplomacy. And in many of these regions, we're not seeing the Pentagon cable traffic, the American military envoys who are now conducting a lot of American diplomacy. So we're only getting a partial picture. Yes, and of course, the CIA traffic, uh, the CIA presence in many of these countries is at least as large as the diplomatic presence and the military presence even greater. Well, on the Republican right of American politics, there's no sense at all that these leaks could be defended in any way. As David Frum, a former speechwriter to President George W. Bush, told me a little earlier. WikiLeaks creates an immediate threat to the lives of certain identifiable people. Um, Toby Harnden, for example, had a good blog post on the Telegraph blog pointing out that uh, WikiLeaks very specifically identifies an Iranian-born informant of the United States um, in the Central Asia region. It doesn't give his name, but it gives so many details about him as to make it certain uh, who who that person is. Um, It identifies um, certain informants in Afghanistan, uh, and these people's lives are put immediately at risk. It also creates, of course, a larger uh, question mark over... um, uh, the relationships between the United States and allies, um, making uh, everybody who talks to an American diplomat or any diplomat worry about their ability to speak candidly um, in those kinds of um, in, under the circumstances where we want candor most. I, I worry that, w- that the U.S. will react by intensifying the secrecy within the U.S. government. Um, the, the background to the breach is that the State Department cables were being shared with military people. Um, we have worked very hard since 9-11 to overcome the unwillingness of different agencies of the U.S. government to talk to each other, and I, I worry that they will respond to WikiLeaks by fortifying their mutual mistrust and speaking uh, to each other less. Um, I think the leaks tell us less about the United States than they do about the external world. Um, they tell us a lot about the Arab world, about what its, um, what its real as opposed to nominal concerns are. Um, and uh, they show the United States working very hard and effectively to put an end uh, to the threat of an Iranian nuclear bomb without having to resort to war, uh, effectively, but unfortunately not successfully. I think the impression you take away from these leaks is that Iran is much more dangerous and much more determined um, than anybody 
um, or that many people would have wished to acknowledge that the United States has been working harder and in, with more commitment to achieve a peaceful solution but with less success, and that Iran's neighbors are much more frightened uh, than uh, they like to admit in public. And we have here the making of a true world crisis. We all want to solve this without the resort to force, but Iran is leaving the world fewer and fewer other choices. David from David Lee, how would you respond to uh, those criticisms? Well, it just shows you the way that everybody takes from these cables the message they want to take. So here we have somebody saying the message from these is twofold. First of all, this is a bad person doing a bad thing. And secondly, oh, it says in here that Iran is a terrible danger, and I agree with that, and it's good we should all know it. Uh, we had that, that kind of split when the Afghan and Iraq war diaries came out as well, when the White House was saying, oh, it's all dreadful, we deplore all this. And by the way, those things it says about Pakistan being very untrustworthy, oh, we're right behind that. So I think what you just hear is people mouthing off, frankly. Sherrod, one of the most striking stories that we published this week was about the request um, from the State Department that American diplomats gather intelligence on United Nations staff, including the Secretary General. Is there, in your view, on basis of your experience, is there an easily defined line between diplomacy and spying no, there isn't. I mean, there have been many times in my career when we could not have done what we sought to do without intelligence, just as uh, the Enigma program on which my mother worked as a young Wren could not have, uh, uh, we couldn't have achieved the sort of victory we did in the timescale we did in the Second World War without that sort of ability to break German codes. So there have been times in negotiations and in other circumstances where uh, secret intelligence has been absolutely vital. And as part of the building blocks of intelligence, uh, it, uh, our agencies need things like phone numbers and basic uh, uh, data. And it's not unknown for them to ask uh, straight diplomats, as it were, uh, to gather that uh, raw material for them. I mean, as I haven't read these cables in detail, but as I understand it, it was a general wish list, as somebody put it, of to asking State Department employees to collect um, you know, mobile phone numbers, email addresses, quite improbably uh, uh, DNA data. I don't know how they were going to do that. Uh, there's no indication of whether any of this was actually gathered. I mean, I've, in my time, have had lots of requests from, um, uh, from our own agencies. Uh, I remember during the Falklands War, they discovered that a distant cousin of mine was an Argentine diplomat, and they uh, asked me if I would approach him, and I said I was not prepared to ask him to betray his country. Uh, that wasn't gathering intelligence. It was asking us to help with the, the, the sort of basic laying the foundations of uh, gathering intelligence, and I, I don't find that illegitimate. It's slightly distasteful, but it's, uh, I'm afraid, part of the grubby business of realpolitik. And David Frum's earlier point, I mean, it was damn stupid to allow roughly three million people to see all American cable traffic in a single dump, I mean, as a single repository. Now, some of the most damaging uh, material that's been published in the last few days uh, originated in the American embassy in Russia, where our Moscow correspondent, Luke Harding, has been sifting through the allegations that Vladimir Putin's government is running a mafia state. I think, if anything, the recent cables will merely um, increase uh, Russia's, you know, scarcely um, hidden kind of hostility, I think, towards... Well, not exactly towards the West, but, but certainly that there's suspicion that uh, there are forces in, in the West and in countries like the US 
uh, but also in Britain that are kind of out to get Russia, if you like, to kind of destabilize it in some way. Um, on the other hand, I think, uh, well, I, the, the cables on Russia are, are really rather sensational. I think of all the WikiLeaks leaks revelations, the Russian ones are, are absolutely kind of gobsmacking. I think they kind of confirm what actually Russians know uh, intuitively, but really never see kind of broadcast on, on their own state-controlled TV or read in their newspapers, which are basically all kind of pro-Kremlin. So it, it's a kind of revelatory moment. But uh, the other thing to say is, of course, that most Russians won't find out anything about this whatsoever because the story has been randomly um, ignored um, in Russia and has been eclipsed by Russia's 2018 World Cup triumph. They are pretty unembarrassable, but I think what is damaging for the Russian government is the sheer level of detail. It's not merely allegations of corruption. I mean, that Dmitry Medvedev, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, they're, they're happy to talk about corruption as a kind of abstract metaphysical concept. What, what they're less happy about is see, seeing very senior US diplomats detailing how exactly the system works. And how the system works is that Russia's intelligence agencies, its interior ministry, its police, uh, prosecutors, um, Kremlin officials are all involved in this kind of network, if you like, um, of, of, of of kind of of, of, of sleaze. Um, and if you're a business in Moscow, for example, if you're um, uh, someone who heads a large corporation, then you have to pay bribes. If you don't pay bribes, then you risk losing your business or, or, or imprisonment. And uh, it, it's it's a very depressing picture. But speaking as someone who's lived in Moscow for four years, I think it's an entirely entirely accurate one. Luke Harding, the Guardian's Moscow correspondent, there. Julian Borger, how do you think these revelations are going to play out internally in Russia? I think, as Luke's po- pointed out, uh, I think they're telling uh, Russians to the extent that they'll be able to find out something that the Russians know full well, that this is emerging uh, an emerging mafia state with a lot of uh, links between uh, the power, state power, uh, uh, the intelligence services and uh, and the mafia. And that's just a, a, a fact of life of living in Russia. I think it maybe tells us more than it will tell uh, tell Russian. Uh, you know, in terms of the, its impact on sort of real politic and uh, Russia's relations with uh, the US, for example, I can't see this having a, a long-term impact. It, I can imagine there'd be a reprisal somewhere along the, the, along the way if uh, uh, it's thought that this was a deliberate uh, leak. But in, in, a, in the bigger picture, I think the, what this will do will uh, damage the State Department vis-a-vis uh, the other agencies. So Sherard made the point earlier. We're seeing a, a joint junior partner here the State Department. And now, if you look at it from, from Moscow, if you want to keep a secret, you're probably more likely to talk to your military opposite number, your intelligence opposite number. You're not going to talk to uh, diplomats. So I think you know, in, the, in the bigger picture, the, bigger, the biggest loser here is the State Department. Sherrod, do you think that there will now be a need to reset the reset button again on American-Western relations with Russia in the wake of this? Or is it less significant, perhaps? Well, I'm not an expert on uh, U.S.-Russian relations, and uh, my instinct is uh, rather like Julian's and Luke, that's Luke's, that this will cause some turbulence, uh, it will reinforce Russian hostility and distrust, but I don't think it will fundamentally affect the nature of the relationship. Both sides have uh, substantive interests at stake, and those interests will continue to govern the relationship rather than... Uh, Uh, revelations which confirm what uh, most of us suspected but didn't know. 
David Lee, do you think that the Russian intelligence services, who one assumes will be combing through this stuff with great interest, do you think they'll be surprised by what they read, or will they know it all? Well, not only will they know it all, but on the account of these cables, they're running a lot of these rackets themselves. So, so Russian intelligence services are right at the heart of it. What I'm worried about is that the Russian intelligence services will, of course, comb through this in, in the hope of finding individuals they can identify and take reprisals against. I was very concerned with what uh, w was said from Washington a few minutes ago about this is the blood-on-their-hands attack, really. The fact is that <laughs> this attack comes from people who already have gallons of blood on their hands, such as American generals, you know, who have killed thousands of innocent civilians. There's no evidence at all that any informant has suffered reprisals, as certainly as a result of what The Guardian has done. We've redacted every piece of identifying information which we think could lead to reprisals against vulnerable individuals. And as we've got lots more of this material to come out in the coming week, I think it's important to stress that. We are being very responsible. I hope the Russian intelligence services won't find anybody to take revenge on in what we publish. I mean, well, arguably, the, the sort of pledge of confidentiality was broken when they shared the information with three million people in a system. And the idea of a, of a diplomat talking to his opposite number or to an uh, official in, in Russia on the idea this is just between us. Uh, I think it will come a re re revelation to the people they talk to that actually it's shared with three million people. Well, we're going to come back later in the discussion to what we're going to be doing in the coming days, but we're moving further east now to look at the security situation in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and there are thousands of cables uh, devoted to that subject. Declan Walsh is based in Islamabad for The Guardian. I think what the cables show is that there's been a great deal of internal division uh, between the coalition partners, particularly between the British and the Americans, over what the strategy exactly should be in Helmand. Um, we see some uh, very sharp criticism of the British from senior American commanders who basically feel that the British were waiting to take the American lead as things got progressively more difficult in Helmand, um, that they were effectively in Sangine, uh, which, of course, is the most dangerous town in Helmand, that the British were basically hunkered into their base, uh, waiting for the Americans to show up. So, in, in that sense, um, it's certainly been unpleasant uh, for the British to hear this in public and embarrassing for the Americans to hear it aired. Um, we've also seen quite a lot of unhappiness between the British and uh, President Karzai over the governance of Helmand. Um, President Karzai wanted to have a man called Akhanzada, Sher Mohammed Akhanzada, appointed as governor of Helmand, uh, and the British refu basically vetoed that on the basis that this man was allegedly heavily uh, linked to drug smuggling and violence. Um, so, you know, in all, we just see a, a really pretty unhappy picture both on the military and the governance front in Helmand over the last number of years. Declan Walsh. Sherrod Cooper calls this information will not have come, I imagine, as much of a surprise to you. But do you agree that it will put further pressure on the British government to end or to wind down its involvement in what seems to be an increasingly unpopular and probably an unwinnable war? I expect so. I mean, as you know, there's a review underway in Washington this month of the uh, so-called strategy. I mean, I, I rather disagree with Declan there. I mean, I, though none of this is remotely new. I mean, Karzai complained to me about the Americans, to the Americans about the British. Um, he was genuinely, and I think uh, sincerely, worried about the way in which violence was ramping up in Helmand. I have to say, as a result of Western forces arriving there. 
Um, he pointed out that it, it was uh, pretty peaceful before the British task force went in there uh, in a, an extremely sort of naive way. It's now very difficult to find anyone in the British system who uh, supported the uh, decision. I mean, none of the ministers who were in the cabinet meeting is willing to say they uh, unequivocally supported the decision. Uh, they say they were pushed into it by the British military. The British military say, well, uh, they didn't really, um, uh, you know, they, it was a political wish to go in as part of a, a campaign to spread NATO across Afghanistan. For me, what these cables show is the utter futility of military operations without a wider political strategy, uh, without a strategy at all, in fact. It's, uh, as I said in the Guardian's comment pages today, it's uh, giving aspirin, local and temporary doses of aspirin, to a patient who's suffering from cancer. And the idea that uh, garrisoning parts of Helmand or Kandahar or the Pashtun belt with Western forces is somehow going to solve the underlying problems is a complete delusion. So is the idea that uh, uh, those forces are going to be replaced by willing or able Afghan forces any time these 20 years. So is the idea that the way to pacify the Pashtun belt is to garrison it with anybody at all. David Lee, you're a hard man to surprise, taken your long years of gruelling investigations, but there are some pretty eye-watering tales of corruption, particularly in the Afghan cables. Would you agree? I was pretty startled to read the account of the then Vice President of Afghanistan turning up at Dubai Airport with $52 million apparently in his suitcase. Uh, and the story that told about the, the, the regime in Afghanistan is a story that's repeated through many other regimes apparently in Central Asia, um, particularly in, in the stands. I mean, sometimes you get the impression reading these things en masse that uh, the American State Department is confronted with a world of villainy and corruption out there, uh, which it struggles to deal with. One of the biggest concerns of the U.S. State Department about this region and also, of course, with regard to North Korea and Russia, is the security of weapons-grade radioactive material. Julian Borger, what do these cables tell us about the likelihood of, frightening likelihood of terrorists getting their hands on the means to make a crude nuclear weapon? Well, I, I think it reinforces uh, fears that there are serious doubts over, for example, the security around uh, Russian uh, nuclear material uh, left over from the Soviet Union. There's great fears about the possibility of proliferation coming out of North Korea. Uh, and several diplomat diplomats in the cables uh, say it's almost certain that if pushed to it and if the uh, uh, regime in Pyongyang is desperate enough, yes, they will sell anything they have, including uh, technology, inter including materials, to anyone who's prepared to pay the price. Uh, so I think it reinforces that very serious threat. I mean, it's one that the American officials make public, but it's clear from the, the cables that this is a really this is a real fear privately as well. Finally, David, what about WikiLeaks itself? We've seen it coming under tremendous pressure. There are international arrest warrants out for its uh, chief, Julian Assange. How do you see the WikiLeaks phenomenon developing in the wake of these extraordinary revelations? 
Well, we may this year have been watching the rise and fall of WikiLeaks because it has been an extraordinarily bold and anarchistic venture to take industrial quantities of leaked material and openly post them on the internet and openly dish them out to the world's media in this way. It's not a safe way to proceed, and I think Julian Assange may well end up in an unsafe situation. Sherrod, do you believe that American diplomats are going to feel in future that they can't be as frank as they have been in their dispatches? Will British diplomats have the same reaction? Yes. I mean, this has already been happening. I mean, poor Carl Eikenbury had uh, a secret paper copies only telegram put on the front of the New York Times. But by his own side, by people inside the administration, I think people are putting less and less down, not on paper, but uh, electronically. And it does lead to a, uh, I don't know whether it's a chilling or constipating effect uh, on the the private dialogue that should be taking place. But having said that, um, you know, people will in the end uh, report what they need to report somehow. And I think, you know, in the end, uh, despite all the temporary embarrassment, WikiLeaks holds a mirror up to the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. And the net effect will be positive. Julian Borgia, when the Pentagon Papers were leaked famously during the the Vietnam War, it was a case then of photocopying thousands of documents, which took months to do. And now, as we all know, files can be copied in a matter of seconds. Are we entering a new era now where it's simply just not possible to keep secure information on computers? How how is this going to affect how people operate? Well, I think in particular it will affect uh, how the State Department and the Defense Department do their job and particularly with this particular network, uh, Cipronet, does seem to have been very un- insecure. Uh, we haven't got learnt anything from the more secret uh, networks that the US runs. Uh, DOD has its own uh, more uh, top secret ne- networks. Uh, we haven't heard anything about the CIA or DIA. So I think you know that there are still secret networks. This was a particular, uh, particularly unsecure, insecure one, uh, and I think there'll be a rethinking of how they do things in terms of uh, distribution. And so you know, it'll affect their ability to work, but I don't think it will affect in the long term the ability to keep secrets. So will this deluge of documents be such a wake-up call that it's going to be harder in future for journalists to get hold of this sort of information? Alan Rusbridger again. Well, I'm sure the, um, in fact, we know because the uh, the Pentagon and State Department have said so that, that they're going to revise their procedures for sharing all this information. And then uh, there's, a, uh, I think, an acknowledgement uh, uh, from particularly the State Department, that it was a, a crazy system to be sharing these um, secrets this widely. So I'm sure that will clamp down. Whether that will lead to less access for journalists in the future, I don't know. I mean, it, this is the first time that journalists have ever seen this kind of um, information in this quantity, but it's not unknown for uh, much more secret stuff to be leaked to journalists, uh, and I'm sure that will go on happening in future. David Lee, the last word to you. How much more is there to come? And how do you plan to follow up so many leads in the coming weeks and months? Well, there's another week of major revelations, if I can put it like that, to come in The Guardian. Uh, And then I think in the new year, we're going to be occupied well into the spring on digesting all the leads and following up all all, all those leads, uh, which are all going to lead to extraordinary stories. I mean, it's really been, it may be a one-off shower, but it's been a wonderful shower of, of real and true information, which is something journalists are generally very starved of. 
Well, that's all we have time for now, but you can read all this week's stories and a fascinating selection of the US Embassy cables on our website, guardian.co.uk. Thanks to my guests, David Lee, Sherrod Cooper-Coles, and Julian Borgen. This has been the Guardian Focus podcast with me, Ian Black. The producers were Peter Sale and Phil Maynard. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.